nine years for less than one gram of cannabis oil. The lead starts right now. Olympic gold medalist and WNBA star Brittany Griner is found guilty by a Russian court and sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony. Now that she's convicted, could this speed up a possible prisoner swap? Then, any moment, the jury in Texas could come back with a decision in the Alex Jones case, but the far-right conspiracy theorist may already be paying a price for his lies, as the January 6th committee and other law enforcement agencies now want access to the text messages his lawyers accidentally sent to the plaintiffs. Plus, changes to airline cancellation rules may be about to take off. Why passengers could actually get refunds for all those canceled and delayed flights. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead. A Russian court found WNBA star Brittany Griner guilty today of drug smuggling, quote, with criminal intent. The judge ordering Griner to spend nine years in a Russian penal colony that's just under the maximum sentence. Griner was arrested and charged back in February for smuggling less than one gram of cannabis oil in her luggage at a Moscow airport. Griner's lawyers argued that she'd been packing quickly when traveling to Russia to play for the Russian Premier League. And she didn't know that the cannabis oil, which had been prescribed by a U.S. doctor for her, was not allowed in Russia. Griner delivering this plea as part of her closing statement. I want to say again that I had no intent on breaking any Russian laws. I had no intent. I did not conspire or plan to commit this crime. Griner's attorney said today that they will appeal the decision. The WNBA star telling CNN this as she left the courtroom. Brittany, how do you feel? I love my family. I love my family. Reactions pouring in about the verdict. President Biden calling it unacceptable. Griner's basketball team, the Phoenix Mercury, saying they are, quote, heartbreaking for Griner and that they will, quote, not allow her to be forgotten. This all comes as the U.S. has been trying to negotiate a prisoner swap deal with Russia, trading a convicted Russian arms dealer currently in a U.S. prison in exchange for Brittany Griner and another American in Russian custody, former American Marine Paul Whelan. One U.S. official reacting to the Griner verdict says that now, quote, the ball is in Russia's court. CNN's Fred Pleitkin begins our coverage from Moscow with details of today's dramatic court ruling. Brittany Griner holding up a photo of her Russian teammates as she hoped for a lenient verdict from the court. Griner shedding tears as she appealed to the judge. I want to apologize to my teammates, my club, Genka the fans in the city of DCAT, my mistake that I made and the embarrassment that I brought onto them. The WNBA star pleaded guilty to the charges, but said she did not intend to bring vaping cartridges containing cannabis oil to Russia, where she was detained at a Moscow airport in February. I never meant to hurt anybody. I never meant to put in jeopardy the Russian population. I never meant to break any laws here. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling, that it doesn't end my life here. But that didn't move the judge, handing down a nine-year jail sentence to be served in a penal colony and a fine of over $16,000. Brittany Griner's lawyer clearly angry and disappointed and vowing to fight on. We think the verdict was totally out of order. 
It does not correspond to what's happening and what happened. And it's totally going against the actual part of the Russian penal code. Both the White House and the State Department condemned the verdict and the long jail sentence. The U.S. lists Brittany Griner as being wrongfully detained and says it's put what it calls a substantial offer on the table to bring both Brittany Griner and former Marine Paul Whelan, who's currently serving a 16-year jail sentence in Russia, home. The chargé d'affaires of the U.S. Embassy was inside the courtroom near Moscow and said the United States will continue to fight for Brittany Griner. President Biden's national security team and the entire American government remain committed to bringing Ms. Griner home safely to her family, friends and loved ones. Brittany Griner's lawyers said she was extremely shaken by the verdict, but she too will fight on, sending love to her family, love family. as she was led out of the courtroom and back to the detention facility she's been locked up in for more than five months. And you know, Jake, I've been observing this trial basically since uh, it started. And, and Brittany Griner's legal team throughout the process has been had been telling me that they actually believe they thought that they were on a good track. They presented some you know, evidence of their own. They had Brittany Griner plead guilty to the charges, asking for leniency. And then they also presented some evidence that cast some doubt on some of the original forensics. Today, Brittany Griner's defense lawyers said that they believe that none of the things that they presented were taken into account by the judge. They're extremely disappointed by this verdict. They now have 10 days to file that appeal. They say that is exactly what they are going to do. I think one more important thing to point out, Jake, is um, she has been sentenced to nine years in a penal colony, which is you know, a pretty hard uh, camp, usually very far away uh, for, uh, from, from here in Moscow. Until that appeal is finished, she is going to remain in the detention facility she's been in so far. So it would only be after the appeals process is finished that she would be moved to a much harsher place, to a penal colony, Jake. All right, Fred Plyken, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond and CNN sports anchor uh, Carolyn Mano. Uh, Jeremy, what's the White House saying about this verdict? Well, Jake, the White House, including the president, are calling this sentence, this nine-year sentence for Brittany Griner, quote, unacceptable. They're calling it reprehensible. And they are urging Russia to engage seriously in the proposals that they have put forward for a potential prisoner swap. I want you to listen to the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Today's sentencing is a reminder of what the world already knew. Russia is wrongfully detaining Brittany. She never should have had to endure a trial in the first place. We have repeatedly called for Russia to release her immediately. As you all know, we have made a substantial offer to bring her and Paul Whelan home. We urge Russia to accept that proposal. And now the president uh, has said that he will continue to work tirelessly uh, and pursue every possible avenue to ensure that Brittany and uh, Paul Whelan are able to come home. And John Kirby, the White House's national security spokesman, said today that the president is, quote, personally involved in this case. Uh, and I asked him what exactly that means. He said that's the president meeting regularly with the whole host of national security officials, including here at the White House, who are working to try and secure Brittany's release. Carolyn, you're in Connecticut where Brittany's uh, basketball team is going to play tonight. How is the team handling the verdict? 
Well, you noted, Jake, at the top of the show, the statement that the Phoenix Mercury released. And part of that was they said that they never expected that the legal process was going to deliver Brittany Griner's freedom. But they called this a very sobering moment. And it is. We're expecting to hear from the team's head coach, Vanessa Nygaard, somewhere around 5 o'clock. Uh, and you'll recall that Vanessa Nygaard has said in the past that she personally feels like if this would have been another big name athlete or celebrity, that Brittany Griner would be home already. I'm told that this this game tonight in Connecticut, the Phoenix Mercury are here to play the Connecticut Sun, that this is going to proceed as scheduled. We're going to probably see a little bit of protest, some T-shirts, as we've seen that unwavering support from the WNBA community for months at this point. But I'm also told that uh, the, her teammates, the players on Phoenix Mercury, are not going to address this verdict tonight. And I'm not sure if that means that they are still processing the weight of this verdict. I think we'll have more answers in the next couple of hours. All right, thank you to both of you, Jeremy Diamond and Carolyn Mano. Um, let's talk about this with our panel here with me to discuss international lawyer William Pomerantz, Beth Sanner, who is the former deputy director of national intelligence, and David Whelan is also joining us. David is the brother of Paul Whelan, who we've mentioned several times today already, currently serving a 16-year sentence in Russian custody. Beth, let me start with you. Uh, you heard Fred note there uh, that the Russian court didn't seem to take into account anything that Griner's attorneys uh, were able to any sort of defense or explanation. It reminded me of when we covered the Trevor Reed story. As soon as the cops figured out that he was an American, the political uh, infrastructure of Russia got involved. This isn't up to the judges, right? This is probably, these are strings being pulled by Putin. Absolutely. And the strings are being pulled by Putin for a couple of reasons. Um, this is an effort to make Putin look strong. Uh, he can go head to head, toe to toe with, the, with Washington. And also, it fits the broader agenda of making Biden look weak, right? So there's a lot to, to be said for what, what Putin wants to get out of this. Uh, and William, Griner's attorney said today the average time in jail for this type of crime is five years. Just to remind people, we're talking about less than a gram, less than a gram of cannabis oil. What do you make of, uh, of him, I mean, of, of Griner being sentenced to, to nine years? Well, I wasn't surprised because, unfortunately, Russia has very tough narcotics laws. And the criminal justice system is, is tilted toward the prosecution and to the, uh, the prosecution. And therefore, I was not surprised that Greiner got a very tough sentence. Uh, it is very difficult to present evidence and to acquit. And that was the result in, the, in today's trial. So, David, uh, your brother, Paul, uh, as we've noted, was also found guilty in a Russian uh, trial. Um, Paul says he's wrongfully accused. The U.S. State Department agrees. Uh, he's serving the 16-year sentence in a Russian labor camp. You know how hard this was for your brother when this verdict came down. We've interviewed the Reed family. We know how tough it was for them, too, when Trevor was sentenced. Give us some insight into, into how Brittany and her family must be feeling today. Well, I'd hate to speak for them, but I can imagine that if you're brought up in a country like the United States where there is a rule of law and there is, I think, a certain societal shame maybe about being found guilty uh, that probably Americans who go through that process in, the, uh, in Russia experience that same thing, where in fact it's, it's all theater. It really has nothing to do with anything, and it's a process that the Russian government goes through. And Beth, let's talk about this swap. The U.S. is offering... Uh, Victor Boot, who's like a Bond supervillain and a drug dealer, an arms trader, in exchange for uh, Brittany and, and Paul Whelan. Um, 
it seems like a, a no-brainer that, that, you know, these are two individuals who are not assets to the United States, uh, uh, Brittany. I mean, they're in, in terms of like a, yeah. a government asset. I mean, right. obviously, they're assets in, in, in more existential ways. But um, and Victor Boot, you know, will be able to continue his reign of crime uh, serving Putin. Why aren't the Russians embracing this deal? Probably because they know how much we want it. They can see how much the president is under pressure to get a deal, and so they're going to hang tough. Um, that doesn't mean they're not going to give it in the end, but so far what they're saying is, you know, they don't even want a two-to-one deal. They want a two-to-two deal. So they're putting, you know, add another person to it. And you've got Victor Boot, the merchant of death, you know, and then you've got Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. Right. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. But um, they're going to play a hard bargain because as a democracy, you know, it's a lot harder on us. Yeah. David, do you think, do you have hope that now that Brittany Griner's um, been sentenced, uh, this could expedite the process of this prisoner swap to get your brother Paul home. I do. I think the Russian government has very particular ways of, of how they approach things, and they were not going to ever move before there had been a conviction in, in Ms. Griner's case. Uh, they now have an offer. They have an offer for a concession that they have been wanting to extort from the U.S. for a while. Uh, so I, I think that there's some hope now. Uh, and, and William, for many in the U.S., the optics of the trial might have seemed frightening. Brittany Griner standing trial. She's behind bars even when she's in court. We saw this with Trevor Reed, too. Uh, even when she was speaking, she was locked up as if she posed some sort of threat. She's there for less than a gram of cannabis oil. Um, do you think these optics play into verdicts in a Russian courtroom or, or what, what, what is the purpose of it? No, I, I don't think it played into the optics of the verdict. Uh, the judge is under very intense pressure to convict. And we've already talked in other places about the 99% conviction rate. The judge does not gain any benefit in terms of her career if she acquits. Indeed, that is a black mark in her career. So she has no real incentive to acquit. Um, and the cage is not, there's not a jury in the courtroom. So it's only the judge who is in the courtroom. And she obviously has dealt with many cases and defendants typically are in a cage during the trial. Uh, and, and David, lastly, I just want to give you an opportunity. I mean, who, we know CNN is run inter- internationally. It, who knows who hears what? If there's a message you want to give Paul, what would you say to him? I would say stay strong. Uh, keep, keep going day to day, and, and hopefully there won't be very many more days for you to have to count before you're back with, uh, back with us. I'm into that. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, can I get a message? The January 6th committee and other law enforcement agencies now asking for access to years of Alex Jones' phone data after his lawyer accidentally handed it over in a court case. Then, when flights are delayed or changed, travelers are the ones who usually pay the price, but that might be changing. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, a jury is deciding how much money, if any, right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones will have to pay for his vile lies about the Sandy Hook school massacre. We're also learning how this case could have ripple effects well beyond that Texas courtroom following the revelation that Jones's attorneys mistakenly turned over two years' worth of Jones's cell phone records and text messages to the Sandy Hook family's attorneys. Those lawyers told the judge earlier today they have received numerous requests from federal agencies and law enforcement officials for those records, including from the January 6th Congressional Committee, given that Jones was pushing the big lie here in Washington, D.C., 
on January 6th. CNN's Drew Griffin is following this all for us. Drew, can those records be turned over to these other entities? In court today, the judge there in Texas basically said, I don't see how they cannot be turned over. However, she paused the whole proceeding and is giving Jones's attorneys at least a couple hours to come up with some legal theory as to why they shouldn't be. Uh, but obviously, the January 6th committee would love to have these text messages of Alex Jones, who went before the committee and supposedly pled the fifth. We also learned through court uh, today that Alex Jones, at least some of his message, involved intimate messages with Roger Stone. Roger Stone also called before the January 6th committee and also supposedly pleaded the fifth. So having these text messages between these two men, both already uh, having strong interest by the January 6th committee, like the judge says, it seems inevitable that this information would get there. And the jury is obviously right now deliberating on how much money, if any, they think Alex Jones should pay these families. Uh, Jones's attorney asked for a mistrial earlier today. On what basis? Well, it's all based on this inadvertent mistake by Jones's own attorneys uh, who, who dumped this information uh, inadvertently into the hands of the plaintiffs. Uh, there's been so many pleas for um, mistrials that the judge actually asked, is this a serious one? Uh, and, and the attorney said, yes, it is serious. And she did dismiss it then. But it was based on the fact that that Alex, uh, excuse me, the, the parents' attorneys in this case should not have kept this information. They should have deleted this information or returned the information because it was inadvertently sent. All right, Drew Griffin, thanks so much for the update. Drew Griffin will take you deep inside Alex Jones' dark world in a CNN special report. Megaphone for conspiracy. Don't miss it. That's tomorrow night at 11 Eastern, only on CNN. The Chinese military launching missiles where they have never before. More fallout from Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Stay with us. In our world lead, a major escalation of the Chinese government's military intimidation campaign against Taiwan. Beijing firing off multiple missiles today toward the waters near the self-governed island, making good on a threat that Taipei will pay a price for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's controversial visit. Chinese state media saying this military show of force is the first time missiles launched from the mainland have flown over Taiwan. China claiming that the live fire exercises are to simulate an air and sea blockade around the island. With me now to discuss, retired four-star U.S. Army General and former CIA Director David Petraeus, also the chairman of KKR Global Institute, which owns some defense contracting firms, though General Petraeus does not work directly with those firms. Uh, General, Taiwan's military says at least 11 Chinese missiles struck the seas surrounding Taiwan. 22 Chinese warplanes entered its air defense zone earlier today. These are unprecedented steps from the Chinese government. How do you interpret them? Well, they are very muscular uh, statements and very muscular actions, Jake. Although the Eastern Command of China said earlier today that it had actually completed uh, all of the live fire exercises and that the maritime and airspace restrictions have been lifted. So it could be that we're starting to see this begin to wind down, though there are still temporary halts on certain exports from Taiwan uh, to China. And I'm sure that the rhetoric will continue for days and that some of the repercussions could continue for weeks or even months. 
Speaker Pelosi's visit comes at a time when relations between Washington and Beijing had already been strained. Today, we're learning that the U.S. is postponing a planned intercontinental ballistic missile test due to concerns over the heightened tensions and how China might react. If the Chinese government only respects strength, would that not be seen as weak by the U.S. to cancel this test? Well, Jake, I think the test of policy when it comes to China uh, has to do with the big idea that you should be firm, very firm, but not needlessly provocative. Uh, And the debate is always, is this more one way or the other? Uh, Clearly, in this case, uh, there's a conclusion that that would be needlessly provocative. Again, that can be debated, uh, as could the the trip in the first place. And in fact, it was debated, unfortunately, openly, as you'll recall, in Washington, as opposed to behind closed doors. And that created some of the awkwardness here. Once the trip was announced, the speaker had to go forward with it. And of course, the party in opposition enjoyed being able to poke the White House in the eye and say that they were with the speaker for once. Let's turn to Putin's war against Ukraine. The White House believes that Russia is preparing to falsify evidence to blame Ukraine for the deadly Donetsk prison blast that resulted in at least 50 deaths and dozens of injuries to Ukrainian prisoners. The Biden administration had made these sorts of warnings before about Russians preparing false disinformation dumps. What's your reaction? Well, all the evidence, and there's quite a bit of it, uh, you know, in today's day and age, you can get commercial satellites, you can get a lot of different uh, information in, through open sources. And so far, it seems pretty conclusive that this was a false flag attack. This was Russia uh, carrying out a, a horrific uh, action against individuals, prisoners of war who are viewed as real heroes in Ukraine. And the Russians trying to blame this on the multiple launch rocket system that the U.S. has provided to Ukraine, but none of the kinds of uh, blast uh, or other indicators of a rocket exploding are at all present. Uh, So again, I think this was a valid warning. Uh, Russia is carrying out, has done something that is absolutely horrific uh, and now is going to try to blame it on the Ukrainians and we shouldn't have any of it. Western officials tell CNN that they estimate about uh, 75,000 casualties for Russia since the start of their invasion, including up to 20,000 Russian deaths. Um, what does that tell you about this conflict? Well, I think one of the big questions right now is which side can generate capable forces the fastest. Uh, and in this case, my money is on Ukraine. Uh, they are very assiduously training Uh, additional soldiers putting together capable units. They're being armed by the arsenals with an S on the end of democracy, not just the U.S., but all our allies and partners alike. And meanwhile, Russia is trying to raise additional forces by telling each of the republics in the Russian Federation to provide a battalion. I mean, that is not the, uh, the way to effectively, efficiently develop capable forces. That's what we did back in the Revolutionary War, to arms, to arms, everyone comes up with the town militia. Uh, And so it gives you an indicator, I think, about the state of desperation of the Russians. And also there's been a very significant indicator that the the firepower of Russia, that at least at the very least, the ammunition uh, has declined precipitously because the rate of fire of the Russians in the offensive actions that they have resumed have been dramatically reduced. Part of that is because the Ukrainians have very effectively used the multiple launch rocket systems that would provide HIMARS. Uh, to precisely take out ammunition storage sites, fuel depots, headquarters, and other important assembly areas. 
Amnesty International says that Ukraine's military is violating international law by putting their bases and, and operating near schools, near hospitals, which obviously puts civilians in harm's way. U- Ukraine has strongly criticized the Amnesty report. They say it's not true. Um, obviously, Russia has committed multiple atrocities in this war. Uh, but what do you make of, of this allegation that the Ukrainian military is operating too close to schools and hospitals? Well, look, anything that is put out should always be taken seriously. We did in Iraq and Afghanistan when I was privileged to be the commander there. Um, my assessment certainly is that it's the Russians that are far and away out on a different scale in this. In fact, you may have seen, Jake, that they are actually using a nuclear power plant as a storage location for arms and ammunition, and they're shooting from it very near to it so that the Ukrainians will not respond to that. Um, so again, I think uh, something to look at. They should take it seriously. They want to be on the side of the rules-based order and the Geneva Convention and law of land warfare. Clearly, the Russians are not going to observe that. And in fact, all the evidence is that they are absolutely violating all of it and have been since the beginning, if you think back to the atrocities that were committed uh, in the villages and towns north of Kiev. All right, General David Petraeus, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Jake. It is so hot in parts of the United States, there are growing concerns that UPS drivers risk cooking to death in their trucks. That's next. In our Earth Matters series, the climate crisis is in full display across the United States again today. Nearly 80 million Americans are under heat advisories. Wildfires are burning out of control in the West, including the McKinney Fire near the California-Oregon border. And for the third time in 10 days, flash floods pummeled the St. Louis, Missouri area. CNN's Tom Foreman is outside in Washington, D.C., where it is currently 97 degrees. Tom? 97 degrees, and with the humidity, forecasters say it feels like about 109. Humidity is always present here. Still, that's not as bad as it's been for some other places where people have really been pounded by it. And, Jake, they've had to be out in it. There's a lot of suffering involved. The heat wave that left fatalities and wildfires out west has now crossed the whole country to scorch the east, making millions of Americans swelter along the way and causing dangerously hot conditions in some places. It's hot. It's very warm. Oh my gosh, I'm dying. It's not, I'm not used to it at all. It's terrible. In New York City, a heat index pushing 100 is threatening weather records going back to World War II. In Philadelphia, 104 was the anticipated heat index. In Washington, D.C., an index of 105 appeared within reach. And in Kentucky, where folks are trying to recover from flooding that left dozens dead. Biggest concern for today and tomorrow is the weather. It is very, very hot. The temperature has been so brutal, the Teamsters Union cited a delivery man collapsing in Arizona last month to say UPS must provide cooling measures or they are sending drivers out to die in the heat. UPS says the health and safety of our employees is our highest priority. UPS drivers are trained to work outdoors and to manage the effects of hot weather. But on the backside of the current heat wave, another problem. More massive storms. My home had about two to three foot of water in it. St. Louis was hammered by 60 mile an hour wind gusts and up to three inches of rain an hour, closing roads, flooding homes. I woke up, the water was this high, 
almost drowned. We had to get out in boats and everything. In Michigan, tens of thousands lost power as trees were blown down. And those blazes out west? Oh, it was crazy. Freaking fire going everywhere, smoke, roads blocked off. They're still burning. But now some firefighters fear mudslides triggered by this summer's ever wilder weather. Whether you are trained to work out in it or not, this is the real deal. And even though some places might get some relief, like we might get some rain in the next couple of hours, make it a little bit better here, the simple truth is more than two-thirds of the country over the next week are expected to hit 90 degrees or above, Jake. And that's right. hot. Tom Foreman, try to stay cool, my friend. Thank you so much. And our money lead... Secretary of the Department of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is looking to help airline passengers who've been screwed by the myriad airline mishaps, hoping to help them get their money back. The department is proposing new protections for consumers seeking ticket refunds. It's an effort to crack down on airlines that have been struggling with cancellations and delays more this year than in a long time. Let's bring in CNN's Pete Montine to discuss. Pete, what are these proposed rules and how are they different from the rules already in place. Well, complaints have shot up 200% to the federal government about airlines since the start of the pandemic. The number one reason, you can probably guess it, is refunds. So many people trying to get their money back if they canceled a flight or had a flight canceled on them. Now the federal government is cracking down on airlines, proposing these new rules that would change what triggers a refund. The issue up until now is that things have been relatively vague when it comes to what the trigger could possibly be for a refund. Until now, the Department of Transportation have said that if a flight is significantly changed, that could lead to a refund for a passenger from an airline. Now, the Department of Transportation is offering some specifics. It says if a departure time of your flight changes by three hours for a domestic flight, plus or minus six hours for an international flight, that could lead to a refund. If the departure or arrival airport changes, if the number of connections on your itinerary increases, and if the airline changes the type of aircraft being used to operate a flight, which causes a significant downgrade in your in-flight experience. Remember, airlines have been struggling this summer with cancellations. 39,000 flights canceled since Memorial Day, according to FlightAware, by airlines in the U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg warned airlines to get their acts together. I want you to listen now to what he told New Day this morning about how this is only part of how airlines will be held to account. It's one of a number of steps that we've have had underway that would expand passenger rights to things like refunds when your flight gets uh, uh, delayed or when you have an extreme delay or some other change to the itinerary that really changes the whole experience, uh, moving you to a different kind of plane or, or changing which airports you're, you're going to, making sure passengers are protected. You can submit public comment about these proposed rules on the Department of Transportation's website. It's only been live for less than 24 hours. More than 100 comments have already been submitted. It seems like everybody has a story about this, Jake. Big public hearing coming up on August 22nd. We should note, these are, these are proposed changes. Proposed they have not, changes. They have not happened. Right. And there are lots of hurdles. And Washington, D.C. has a lot of uh, <laughs> lobbyists who work for companies like the airlines. The airlines, of course, will chafe against this. And they have been vehemently defensive about whether or not they give people refunds. You know, the airlines have said that they are on the up and up and they are following the rules to the letter of the law, although even still, 
the government says they need to get their act together and start giving people their money back. By the way, these are only refunds in terms of vouchers or credits, and they can be used indefinitely. No expiration date on these, but it's not like cash going from the airline back into your pocket. Yeah, the airlines love those <laughs> sneaky expiration right. dates. And, and tell me about American Airlines cutting back flights in September and October. Is that related to this? Well, remember, airlines have been struggling with these cancellations for months. They've been struggling with staffing issues. They've been struggling with air traffic control delays. Summer weather is here now. American Airlines says it simply needs to right-size its schedule and build more reliability into it. So it's scaling back the number of flights it's offering in September and October, a place that's being hit big time. Philadelphia International Airport, hundreds of flights will be slashed from the schedule there. You know, this is not over. We've seen airlines do this throughout the summer to try and make it so that people aren't surprised by these cancellations. We will see as this unfolds. It may not be the only airline to do this. All right, Pete Montine, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A Lone Star State showdown that some say, some, could possibly indicate a blue wave coming to Texas. We'll take a look next. In our politics lead, Texas has not had a Democratic governor since January 1995. Since then, Democrats have sank tens of millions of dollars into trying to get the governor's mansion back. Which brings us to the race between Republican incumbent Governor Greg Abbott and former Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. Democrats say in the aftermath of the Uvalde Elementary School massacre and the overturn of Roe v. Wade, Democrats have new hope for November. CNN's Ed Lavendera takes a closer look now at the governor's race in Texas. The crowds are back following Beto O'Rourke's campaign, this time for governor of Texas. In our Texas, it's going to be you and me. Several public polls show O'Rourke trailing Republican Greg Abbott by single digits. That has Texas Democrats once again wondering if this is the year they crack almost three decades of Republican control in the state, even as Abbott remains the favorite in the race. In the days after the Uvalde school massacre, O'Rourke confronted Abbott at a press briefing. Somebody needs to stand up for the children of this state. We caught up with O'Rourke at a campaign stop in Galveston, where he told us he's proud of that moment. He said not a word about how we were going to prevent the next mass shooting. I knew that I had to stand up on behalf of our fellow Texans. The race is drawing renewed attention in the aftermath of the Uvalde shooting and the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Have those two issues changed the dynamic of this governor's race? Absolutely. More Texans think we're on the wrong track right now than have ever said that to a pollster or, or a survey scientist. This state wants change. Governor Greg Abbott's campaign remains confident about his re-election prospects. The governor refused CNN's request for an interview, but Abbott does routinely go on Fox News to talk about immigration and border security. And this just shows the hypocrisy of these liberal leaders up in the Northeast who think, well, that border crisis created by Joe Biden, uh, that's fine as long as it's Texas that has to deal with it. Welcome to Texas. Republican Eva Guzman is a former Texas Supreme Court justice and former candidate in the primary for attorney general. She says O'Rourke is too liberal for Texas. What you're going to see in the governor's race is Texans focusing on Biden's failures and how they impact their lives. And the reason the Democrats haven't flipped Texas, because their policies don't align 
with Texas values. But there are some signs recent events are cracking the support of conservatives and Governor Abbott. Children were murdered. This week, the city council in Hondo, Texas, a county where Greg Abbott got 75% of the vote in 2018, voted to cancel a contract with an NRA fundraising group, a move that shocked many. And then there are some voters like Donnie Ray Valdez. His girlfriend's daughter was killed in the Robb Elementary School attack. He says he voted for Abbott and Trump, but not this year. Beto O'Rourke's been adamant on helping us, you know. Um, as a Trump supporter, as a Republican, I, I feel ashamed at all the help that we've been getting, you know, from, from the Republican side. And Jake, you know, four years ago, Beto O'Rourke ran against Ted Cruz for Senate, came up a couple of points short. Uh, the O'Rourke campaign believes that their operation that they built four years ago will help them turn out voters this time around. But we've spoken with uh, Abbott campaign officials who believe that still the math here in Texas in, is on their side, that no matter how many Democrats turn out, that there are still far more Republicans in this state than Democrats. Jake? Ed, Governor Abbott spoke at the CPAC convention today. Did, did he mention the race? Uh, you know, barely mentioned uh, Beto O'Rourke during his during his talk here, uh, an interview in front of a, a, a small uh, a CPAC audience. But you know, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, Governor Abbott has really been focusing on uh, border security issues, uh, the economic uh, uh, issues w w with the country, and tying all that back to Biden and, and O'Rourke. So that has been kind of the themes that he, that he has carried on. It's also important to remember, Jake, that uh, Governor Greg Abbott has taken a lot of heat from the far right wing of his party in. Texas. He's not universally beloved by Republicans in the state. All right, Ed Levandera, thank you so much. More than two years after Breonna Taylor was shot and killed by police, the officers involved in that botched raid have been arrested and charged. Details ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it has been more than two years since Breonna Taylor was killed by a police by police during a botched raid. And now four current or former officers are facing federal charges. Plus, Congresswoman and Vice Chair of the January 6th Committee, Republican Liz Cheney, saying more than she ever has before about whether the Justice Department, in her view, should pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump. The exclusive sit-down you will only see on CNN. And leading this hour... No justice in the Russian justice system. WNBA star Brittany Griner is found guilty and sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony for carrying less than one gram of cannabis oil. Griner's legal team says they will appeal, and the sentence could reignite talks with Russia about a possible prisoner swap to free Griner. We start our coverage with Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us, tracking the reaction in Washington and across the world to the Griner verdict today. Brittany Griner's face solemn as the judge read her harsh sentence in a Russian courtroom. Nine years of imprisonment. Almost six months after the American basketball star was detained in a Russian airport for carrying cannabis oil, the judge ruled she was guilty of smuggling drugs, saying she did so deliberately, even though Griner said she had no intention of breaking Russian law or packing the oil. I want to apologize to my teammates, my club, Genka, the fans in the city of Decat, for my mistake that I made and the embarrassment that I brought onto them. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling that it doesn't end my life here. 
On her way out of the courtroom, when asked about the verdict, these were her only words. I love my family. Just minutes after the ruling, President Biden said his administration will work tirelessly to bring Griner home and called the sentence unacceptable. Even Griner's Russian lawyers were surprised by the verdict. Did you expect that the verdict will be that severe? No, we did not. The average is five years or around five years and uh, almost a third of the people convicted get the uh, parole. They plan to file an appeal for Griner and find a way to pay her fine of about 16,000 U.S. dollars. All of this coming as the Biden administration has pushed the Kremlin to accept an offer they put on the table in June to get Griner home, offering to swap Griner and another American, Paul Whelan, for Victor Boot, an infamous arms smuggler serving a 25-year sentence in the United States. So far, Russia has not agreed. They, they should have accepted it weeks ago when we first made it. Uh, it was an earnest attempt to see if we could get to some outcomes here. Um, and we're still going to keep making those attempts. As for where those efforts stand now, administration officials say the ball is in Russia's court. All while her family, teammates and supporters in the United States turn up the pressure to get her home. Griner's agent saying today that getting a deal done will be hard, but calling it urgent. Her team saying they will not allow her to be forgotten. And lawmakers urging the administration to bolster the offer they put on the table. I believe now is that we have to ramp it up. There's nothing that we should not do uh, short of uh, impacting the national security of this nation. We cannot continue this saga or this uh, masquerade. We've got more cards in the deck. Now, of course, this sentencing today, Jake, puts increased pressure on those negotiations by the U.S. government to try and get Griner home. And the NSC's John Kirby wouldn't detail what President Biden would be willing to do or not willing to do in terms of a potential new prisoner swap proposal because Russia has not effectively engaged in the first one. But we should also note that her sentence was nine years in a penal colony, but she won't actually go to, uh, to the penal colony until uh, her appeal has worked through the entire Russian legal system. So for now, she will remain at a, court, at a prison on the outskirts of Moscow. Jake? Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Turning to our politics lead, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he is planning an initial vote on the Democrats' signature economic bill for this Saturday. This, as key holdout Senator Kirsten Sinema, Democrat of Arizona, shares some changes she would like in the final bill. Her vote will be needed if the Senate parliamentarian rules the Democrats can indeed pass the legislation with a strict party-line vote. CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju joins us now live. Uh, Manu, what changes is Senator Sinema seeking, and are Democrats willing to play ball? Well, she is still not saying whether she will vote to proceed to this legislation on Saturday. And they do need all 50 Democrats in order to do that. And she is still raising concerns about some of the tax provisions in this proposal, including the corporate minimum tax. Now, I'm told by multiple sources she has raised concerns about that 15 percent minimum tax on major corporations because of the impact that it could have on manufacturing. That proposal would raise $313 billion over 10 years, affecting companies that make about a billion dollars 
in income, but she has been concerned about language in the Democrats' proposal that would change how companies can deduct assets that depreciate. Under the 2017 tax law that the Republicans enacted, it said that 100% of the cost of an asset could be depreciated on the year that that asset is used. The Democrats want to phase that down. Manufacturers have been concerned, have made raised that concern directly with Cinema, including on a call earlier this week. And I am told she has raised concerns internally about that provision. Democrats, it's unclear how they will resolve that because that provision alone would raise $84 billion in this proposal. And Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat who cut this deal, wants to ensure that this would... a total package would save $300 billion in deficit savings, which was the deal that he cut with Chuck Schumer. There's another problem because Cinema has tried to, is going after the so-called carried interest loophole, and that affects hedge fund managers and private equity, and it would cost about $14 billion, raise $14 billion over 10 years in a Democrats' plan. If Cinema succeeds and kills that provision, they would lose $14 billion in revenue raisers. She has also privately raised concerns and pushed to add an additional $5 billion to provide for aid for drought relief in states like her own that have been hit hard by drought. So a lot of questions still, Jake, about whether they can appease her. Democrats are confident that they will eventually get there. They can raise the concerns. They can satisfy her concerns. But the issue will be, can they get the numbers to line up? And can they get it done by Saturday when they want to get it all together, get all 50 of the members in line, get the bill to the floor, and eventually get to final passage of this major piece of legislation by the end of the weekend. And no Republicans are expected to support this in any way, right? Yeah, all Republicans will going to oppose this. They are battling this furiously. They are concerned about these tax increases in particular, but they're also going after the Democratic plan to try to cap drug prices as well as to allow Medicare the power to negotiate prescription drug prices. This plan also would spend hundreds of billions of dollars to deal with climate change and energy provisions. They're concerned about the spending levels, even if it does save money on the back end from deficit reduction from both those tax increases and because the allowing Medicare the power to negotiate would raise revenue for the government. But nevertheless, Republicans are fighting this hard and they are contending that Repub- Democrats will pay for this at the ballot box. All right, Manu on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Let's discuss with uh, Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Um, Senator, I, I want to start um, by... Uh, replaying this video Manu Raju just highlighted of Cinema and Manchin chatting on the Senate floor. It, it, that looks an awful lot like you chatting with them, uh, maybe. Uh, what, what did you uh, all have to say? Uh, well, Jake, I'm not going to get into the details of that conversation, but um, Manu just gave a quick overview of what the issues are before us. Um, the most important thing is that we get this bill passed. Uh, It is a bold and ambitious bill that will reduce prescription drug prices, cap out-of-pocket costs for millions of Americans, reduce health care costs, pay down the deficit by as much as $300 billion, and make significant progress on combating climate change. That larger framework, I am confident all 50 Democrats will support, and we will get this bill to President Biden's desk. Yeah, but the issue is that Senator Sinema, for example, does not want to close the carried interest loophole, thereby allowing wealthy hedge fund and private equity managers to keep paying this reduced tax rate on their income instead of the rate that most Americans watching pay. Has she given any substantive reason as to why this loophole should not be closed? Um, Well, Jake, this is something that uh, I've supported our closing. Um, Everyone else in our caucus has supported 
uh, closing, moving the time that you um, have to hold on assets in order to get this particular treatment from three to five years. It would raise $14 billion and would help us both pay down the deficit uh, and invest in combating climate change. If Senator Sinema ends up making this one of the critical things that she refuses um, to support being in the package, we will have to change the scope of the package or find a different way forward. Okay, so you're willing to get rid of that. Um, but what about the, the other part that Manu just talked about uh, having to do uh, with the, the minimum tax paid for corporations? Uh, Pat Toomey was on the show, Senator Toomey was on the show Sunday, and he said the problem with requiring a minimum tax for corporations is that it affects the corporation's ability to invest that money in uh, future manufacturing, which was part of the 2017 uh, Trump uh, tax bill. Um, how, do you, how do you counteract that argument? Well, let's be clear. This is a minimum tax that applies to corporations um, that are bringing in more than a billion dollars a year in revenue. And as a simple principle, the idea that there should be a minimum amount of taxes paid uh, by the very wealthiest Americans and the most profitable companies is something our caucus has come together behind. Um, I do think we need to take a hard look at how it might impact competitiveness. Uh, you know, Jake, I'm someone who worked in manufacturing for eight years, um, and we are just about to go to a bill signing on Tuesday where President Biden will sign into law um, the last major piece of legislation that we passed here in the Senate with a bipartisan vote, uh, the Chips and Science Bill, that does a lot to invest in manufacturing. So um, I think we have to look at both of these pieces of legislation, the incentives and the investments in manufacturing that come out of the Chips and Science Bill uh, that we just passed last week, and any potential impact here in terms of a corporate minimum tax. At the end of the day, Jake, um, I don't think we should go out, that we should leave Washington for August until we've resolved these issues in our caucus and move this bill forward. But bottom line, you've talked to her. We just saw the tape. Do you think that this will happen, that, that whatever changes she needs uh, will be ones that Democrats are willing to make and that her asks aren't too much? Uh, Jake, I'm optimistic we will get this bill to President Biden's desk. Uh, after more than a year of hard work and lots of negotiations, um, the credit for getting this package done goes to Senator Schumer um, and to Senators Manchin and Cinema for working out uh, whatever these last few details will have to be. Let me just reinforce how excited I am that we will invest in reducing the costs your average American faces for prescription drugs, for health care costs, for energy, and we will make the biggest investment in our history in combating climate. Yes, there's a few details to be worked out in the next few days, um, but I think we're going to get to President Biden's desk an historic package that Democrats in the Senate will deliver. This morning, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat of New York, publicly apologized to President Biden after saying in a primary debate earlier this week that she didn't think Biden was running for re-election, but Maloney's apology was interesting, too. Take a listen. I probably should. Mr. President, I apologize. I want you to run. I happen to think you won't be running. But when you run or if you run, I will be there 100 percent. You have deserved it. You are a great president. And thank you for everything you've done for my state and all the states and all the cities in America. Thank you, Mr. President. You're still saying there. I'm sure you caught it. I happen to think you won't be running. 
Is it 100 percent that President Biden is going to run for reelection? Uh, when we've talked about it, President Biden has said to me that um, he intends to run for reelection. But frankly, he is focused on getting these important pieces of legislation signed into law, delivering relief for the American people now. Um, the price of gas in my home state, our home state of Delaware, has gone down week after week after week for five weeks now. It's below $4 uh, at many gas stations in my home state. Um, and I know that the president is concerned about getting this bill to his desk that will provide relief in terms of the costs of the prescription drug counter, the grocery store, or for energy. So um, I don't think he, by a long shot, is done making a difference for the American people. Um, in the last few weeks, he's also made a huge difference on the world stage. We here in the Senate just ratified adding Finland and Sweden to NATO, which makes us safer and stronger as a country, reduces the risk that Americans will have to go fight to defend our European allies in NATO. President Biden has a significant record of accomplishment as president, and I appreciate the Congresswoman recognizing that. Um, whether or not he will be running in 2024, I think will depend on a lot of things between here and then. Uh, but I know it's his intention to run for re-election. And that vote was uh, 95 to 1 with uh, Senator yes. Josh Hawley, the one person voting against uh, letting Sweden and Finland into NATO. That's right. Um, it was an overwhelming vote. Um, I'm not sure why Senator Hawley would stand out as the one opposed. But the 95 of us, I think it was, who voted in favor um, show the strength and the bipartisanship behind NATO, um, the most successful alliance, uh, I think, in modern history, um, certainly that we've ever been a part of. It's produced stability and security in Europe. And after <clears throat> Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, President Biden masterfully pulled together um, the Western alliance, um, yeah. our both NATO allies and EU partners. And this is a strategic defeat for Putin, a critical defeat for his goal of weakening and dividing NATO. All right, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, thank you so much. Republican thank Congresswoman you, and Vice Chair of the January 6th Committee, Liz Cheney, going further than she has before about what happens if Donald Trump does not face consequences for January 6th. The CNN exclusive next. Then, more and more Americans now being forced to choose between life-saving medications or putting food on the table. A look at the potentially deadly consequences of inflation. Stay with us. And we're back with a CNN exclusive in our politics lead. Sources say that Donald Trump's legal team is in talks with key Justice Department officials in an effort to shield conversations Trump had while president. These talks are the first sign of direct communication between Trump's team and the federal criminal investigators who may investigate him about his January 6 actions. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance joins us now live with this exclusive reporting. Caitlin, how significant are these conversations? Well, Jake, this is very significant. So everything we're seeing here is the Justice Department circling around Donald Trump, his West Wing, even his statements made on January 6th. And sources uh, today are confirming to Kara Scannell, Kristen Holmes, Gabby Orr and I that uh, there is direct communication between the Justice Department and lawyers representing Donald Trump. And so this development is is not just uh, any types of communications. It's really building on a story that's been unfolding over the past couple weeks where there were people from the office of the vice president being brought before the federal grand jury in Washington testifying about what they were hearing in the West Wing on January 6th. And then 
people in the White House counsel's office were receiving subpoenas to go to that grand jury. That tees up this possible privilege fight over executive privilege, what Trump was saying um, happening then. And then that leads to these conversations. That's what the conversations are about. And Trump's team is maintaining that Donald Trump has the ability to assert executive privilege uh, and definitely protect the things that he believes should be secret about his presidency. The Justice Department on their end they have a lot of history on their side, potentially giving them access to that. But they may have to go through the court first to get it. You're also learning that Trump has personally been briefed on all this. How is his team handling all this internally? Well, uh, from what we know from our sources, they have been warning him that there are possible indictments coming in the January 6th investigation around him. Uh, and they are discussing defense strategies at least twice uh, with him. He has been asking him, uh, asking his lawyers and others if they think that he will be charged. But then, of course, this is Trump being Trump. Uh, our sources say that he seems to be skeptical that he will possibly be charged. And even at times, he doesn't even appear to be listening to what some of his advisors are telling him. Well, that definitely sounds like Trump. Uh, he's also been warned about having conversations with certain individuals. That's right. So his advisors are telling him, you know, it might be the time to back off having direct conversations with some of the people that are getting caught uh, or participating in these January 6th probes on the Hill, the Justice Department. That includes Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff in the White House, this person who really became central in what the House was investigating and potentially could be central in the Justice Department probe as well. We understand that uh, he was advised, Trump was advised to cut ties with Meadows. That hasn't actually fully happened. And this possibility that Meadows could become more central in the criminal probe, we haven't seen a lot of that evidence yet as far as what we're learning with this grand jury activity. But when asked about it, we asked Meadows' attorney what he thought about this, and his response was, all of it is idle and uninformed speculation, apparently by people that know little but talk a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Caitlin Palance, thank you so much. Great reporting. Appreciate it. Also in our politics lead, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming has strong words for the Justice Department and a possible suggestion for what she would like the attorney general to do with Donald Trump in the wake of the January 6th committee hearings. CNN chief national affairs analyst Casey Hunt joins us now live. Casey, you just got back from uh, Laramie, Wyoming, where you interviewed Congresswoman Cheney. What did she say? That's right, Jake. And it's actually uh, even more interesting in light of the new reporting uh, from Caitlin and the rest of our team there. You know, I asked her, she's been a little bit circumspect when she's been asked in interviews and, and when she's spoken from the dais during the committee hearings about whether, for example, the committee is going to issue a criminal referral uh, to the Justice Department for Donald Trump or for others in his orbit. She's been very clear they haven't made that decision yet. Uh, but I pressed her about what she thought, what she believed about whether it would be worthwhile for the Justice Department to undertake the probe. There have, of course, been uh, some concerns raised about whether that would be, you know, essentially a political tinderbox that could potentially benefit Donald Trump in some strange uh, sort of way. So when I put this question to her, she actually went farther than I've heard her go before about what she thinks the Justice Department should do uh, based on, in, in reality, what we, what we already know about the former president's actions. Watch. Some have expressed concern that prosecuting former President Trump would turn him into a martyr and potentially add to his political strength with a base that follows him pretty rapidly. Do you share that concern? Do you have any concern that a prosecution would strengthen Donald Trump's political hand? I don't think that it's uh, appropriate to think about it that way because 
Um, the question for us is, are we a nation of laws? Um, are we a country where no one is above the law? And what do the facts and the evidence show? And uh, certainly, I've been very clear, I think he's uh, guilty of the most serious dereliction of duty of any president in our nation's history. Uh, you've had a federal judge in California um, say that it's more likely than not that uh, he and John Eastman committed uh, two uh, crimes. So, uh, you know, I think that we're going to continue to follow the facts. I think the Department of Justice will do that. But they have to make decisions about prosecution, understanding um, what it means if the facts and the evidence are there and they decide not to prosecute. Um, how do we then call ourselves a nation of laws? I think that's a, a very serious, serious balancing. How do we call ourselves a nation of laws, uh, she says, if the evidence is there, really suggesting uh, that under no circumstances does she believe the Justice Department should decline to prosecute because of any political concern or concern about the fact that it's a former president. So it was a pretty wide-ranging uh, interview, Jake. We talked a lot about uh, her political future in addition to her work on the January 6th committee, but the reality really is those two things are completely tied up together at this point. Yeah, in a week and a half, she faces a primary, a difficult one being waged against her by Trump, a Trump-backed challenger, uh, Harriet Hageman, I think is her name. She, she finally, uh, after playing footsie with it for a long time, finally became a full-fledged election denier this week, according to the Casper Star Tribune newspaper. She told the crowd, quote, absolutely, the election was rigged. It was rigged to make sure that President Trump could not get reelected. What happened in 2020 is a travesty, unquote. Obviously, that is not true. All of that is a lie, but it's kind of a big deal, right? Uh, it's pretty significant, I think, in the debate that she had uh, with Cheney and some other candidates in the race earlier in the year. She wouldn't go that far. I mean, she uh, wouldn't say that the election was not stolen, but I think it underscores the environment that she's uh, been surrounded by as she's been campaigning. And it becomes more and more likely that she'll become the Republican nominee uh, for this Wyoming House seat. The, uh, you know, there are reports that um, the, the Republican chairman in Wyoming is an oath keeper. That's what uh, the Cheney campaign will tell you. We know he was at the Capitol uh, on January 6th. So there's a very strong uh, element of this in Wyoming. And, you know, I think Cheney's challenge and, you know, I think they understand the magnitude of the challenge they face. I think it's it's much more likely that she loses on August 16th uh, than, than she wins. And I think that they're very aware of that. I mean, what you're looking at right now is a small campaign event she did uh, with some supporters uh, in Laramie. And, you know, I was there for it. And frankly, she spent most of the time talking about her work on the January 6th committee, which is an incredibly stark uh, contrast to what uh, her opponents out there saying about the stolen election. There were also a couple Democrats uh, in the room, one of whom I spoke to and who said uh, she was going to change her registration uh, to vote for Liz Cheney. So uh, it's just a much, much different landscape uh, that Liz Cheney is occupying it and working in uh, than, than the Republican Party. And the Republican Party has really moved out from underneath her and, and her family, frankly. And her family, indeed. Cheney's campaign just came out with a new TV ad featuring her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney. Here's part of that. Uh, talking about Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. You think well, that's that, a campaign ad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you think that ad's going to change any minds? Uh, you know what, uh, Jake? I mean, obviously, he's a well-known figure in Wyoming. The family's been a big deal there for a long time, but I don't think it's going to surprise 
anybody. I think, you know, at this point, the goal is probably motivating uh, people. Uh, but the reality is, at the end of the day, there are, there are not enough Democrats or independents uh, who might be willing to, to switch uh, in, in Wyoming to really uh, make a huge difference here. So, uh, I, you know, I'd be surprised. Casey Hunt, thanks so much. Be sure to catch all of Casey's exclusive interview with Congresswoman Liz Cheney tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360. We have some breaking news. The jury has delivered a verdict in the Alex Jones defamation case, and we will bring that news to you next. Stay with us. And we're back with breaking news. A jury in Texas has reached a decision in the defamation case involving far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. The jury decided how much families of Sandy Hook Massacre uh, who sued Jones should be awarded. CNN's Drew Griffin has been following the case from the beginning. Drew, so what did the jury decide? In what should be a disappointment for the parents of this uh, murdered child, the jury decided that Alex Jones should pay compensatory damages of just $4.1 million. Now, that does sound like a lot of money, but the parents were asking for $150 million in this stage of the trial. There is a second stage, which begins tomorrow morning, which they will be asked uh, about punitive damages. There's no specific uh, tabulation on what those punitive damages would be, but that would be to actually punish Alex Jones for the wrong he committed. This part of the trial was just to basically give the parents the money they thought they deserved because of the actual damages they suffered from defamation, from mental uh, anguish and stress that Alex Jones caused when he lied and stressed that the, uh, that the shooting, the massacre uh, at Sandy Hook was in fact a hoax. So this is uh, a bit of a mixed bag. They did get compensatory damages, but obviously $4 million compared to $150 million is far less than that they were seeking. James. Yeah, let's see what happens with the punitive damages, which is by definition to punish the individual. Right. Griffin, thank you so much. More than two years later, four Louisville police officers now face federal charges in the death of Breonna Taylor during a botched search. That story next. International lead 874 days after the killing of Breonna Taylor during a botched Kentucky police raid. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced federal charges against four current and former Louisville Metro police officers who were involved in the deadly incident. The charges mark the first federal counts leveled against any of the officers involved. Remember, Kentucky's Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron had declined to seek state or Commonwealth murder charges in the case. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us now live with more on this. Jessica, what are these four defendants being charged with? officers who shot and killed Brianna Taylor. Instead, three of the four officers are charged with falsifying information that provided the basis for the search warrant of Taylor's apartment. Specifically, the officers said that someone involved in the drug traffic trafficking operation they were investigating received packages at Taylor's home, and that's something that prosecutors now say the officers knew was false. And the indictment even accuses two of the officers of not just falsifying the affidavit, but then conspiring to lie about it afterward, even meeting in a garage two months later where they agreed to tell investigators a fake story. Now, the last officer charged today was at the scene of the botched police raid, but officials say that he used unconstitutionally excessive force when he fired 10 shots 
into the side window of Taylor's apartment. That officer, he was previously charged in a state case, but it was ultimately acquitted. And Jake, we have just learned that two of the officers who actually still remain at the Louisville Police Department, they're in the process now after being charged federally of being terminated from the department. Huh. So Brianna Taylor's mother and attorney just held a press conference a short time ago. Uh, what are they saying about the charges? So they say that they've been waiting, they say, 874 long days for this indictment ever since Brianna Taylor's fatal shooting death. And they say that now that they finally feel vindicated, they say um, that they have long awaited this. They have long argued that the botched raid at Brianna's t- Brianna Taylor's apartment never should have happened in the first place. And then you mentioned the Republican attorney general here, David Cameron, and the attorney for Taylor's family says that he really blasted him for never bringing murder charges in this case. Take a listen. We are so grateful to the Department of Justice because they followed where the facts went and where Daniel Cameron wouldn't go. Today's overdue, but it still hurts. Now, Brianna Taylor's family, they have long been pressing the DOJ to file charges. They actually met Jake with top officials at the DOJ back in March. And this really isn't the end here. The Justice Department has this ongoing pattern or practice investigation into the Louisville Police Department. They're investigating whether or not they use excessive force or even practice racially discriminatory policing. So this whole saga is still ongoing. But at least now, Brianna Taylor's family feels at least somewhat vindicated here. All right, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Americans forced to choose which of their life-saving medications they can take because they can no longer afford to take them all. A look at the potentially deadly cost of inflation. That's next. And our money lead, inflation is not only making your food more expensive and your rent more expensive. For some Americans, the life-saving medications they rely upon are becoming unaffordable. CNN's Gabe Cohen speaks now with some of the families affected in the difficult decisions they now have to make. All of those are for my heart. These are the medicines Angelina Scott can't live without. This is a blood thinner. For high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and an irregular heartbeat. Don't take these, my heart will stop. But with sky-high inflation and hundreds of dollars in monthly medical costs, this notary and her husband, a maintenance worker, are falling behind on their bills, staving off shutoff notices. So to cut costs, she's stopped taking medicine for her irritable bowel syndrome. People, well, you can't afford not to. No, literally, I cannot afford to. It makes me really sick. Why do I have to choose between living and living? <laughs> In June, U.S. health care costs were up 4.5 percent from the year before. And with the price of food, gas, rent and utilities surging even higher, millions of Americans are struggling to afford the care they need. What this leads people to do is have to make horrible trade-offs between paying for their medication or their diagnostic test or seeing their physician or their doctor and having to pay for basic costs of living, their gas, their food, their groceries, their child care. A new survey from Gallup and West Health found roughly two in five adults, an estimated 98 million Americans, have delayed or skipped treatment, cut back on driving utilities and food, or borrowed money just to pay medical bills in the last six months. And 39 percent have major concerns about affording care in the coming months. Inflation and, and its impact on health care are, you know, are, are breaking families and breaking individuals. And we need to we need to wake up and act. Everything's lit up. 
everything but my paycheck. 71-year-old Libby Dancy is a caseworker for an organization that helps struggling seniors in Virginia, but she herself can't afford to retire. I'll be working here probably until they find me laid out back there in my office. A three-time cancer survivor, she spends hundreds each month on critical medicine like heart pills, breathing treatments, and insulin. So she's tightening her budget, keeping her AC off in the summer heat, and foregoing her allergy meds, probiotics, and vitamins until payday. What did that do to you physically? Mess me up. Mess my system up and everything, you know. High inflation is squeezing most Americans, sending U.S. household debt to a record high more than $16 trillion. I feel like it's suffocating me slowly. For some, the Budget Balancing Act grows more difficult by the day. All those things are horrible, but how do I tough out trying to live? Now, the Inflation Reduction Act being debated in the Senate would provide some health care reform, among other things, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices and capping out-of-pocket expenses for seniors at $2,000. But, Jake, it won't solve this short-term problem that even though the price of health care has only risen about half as fast as overall inflation, those price hikes altogether are forcing Americans to make some brutal decisions. Yeah. Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, thanks for joining us. Um, first, let's start with the big news out of Russia. A Russian court found Brittany Griner guilty of smuggling less than an ounce of cannabis oil, sentencing her to nine years in a Russian penal colony. Now, we know the U.S. has publicly offered Russia a prisoner swap to try to get Griner and Paul Whelan, another American being held in Russian custody, back. Where does that deal stand right now? So, Jake, thank you so much for for having me. I want to start off by saying what we saw today with the sentencing is exactly what we all knew, what the world knew, which is that Brittany Griner was being wrongfully detained by Russia. And she should have never, never have gone uh, through that trial in the first place. So we are doing everything that we can to make sure that she gets home uh, to be with her wife, to be with her family, to be with her uh, teammates, and as well as Paul Whelan. As you just laid out, uh, mentioned, Jake, we have put a substantial offer on the table uh, to make that happen, to make sure that they come home. And we urge Russia uh, to take that deal seriously. Uh, obviously, I cannot, uh, for, for obvious reasons, like we cannot negotiate uh, in public. We cannot really say more uh, than what we've already said, but you've heard from the Secretary, uh, Secretary Blinken this week. You've heard from our National Security Advisor. This has been a top of mind for not just the President, but his National Security team. And we are going to do everything that we can, take every, every measure that we can to make sure that she and Paul come home to their families. Are there conversations going on? I mean, when we hear from the Biden administration that the ball's in Russia's court, that sounds like they haven't even responded to the very public offer. So as you know, the public offer, as we've mentioned before, has been out there, has been on the table for them for weeks. Uh, The moment that we put that out there and said that there was a serious offer, a substantial offer uh, on the books, we heard back. Uh, from Lavrov. There was a conversation between Secretary Blinken and Lavrov, as you know, as we've have seen and been reported out. Uh, so that conver- those conversations continue government uh, to government. But again, this needs to be taken seriously. We saw the measures that the president took 
uh, to make sure uh, we, we brought home Trevor Reed back. Yeah. And so we're going to, again, we're going to take this very seriously as we have been. Uh, the president is, is updated on a regular basis. We have to make sure that Brittany and Paul come home and also continuing to work on other U.S. nationals that are being held, uh, uh, being detained, wrongfully right. detained and held hostage as well. So today the White House declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Cases are rising across the U.S. Uh, I've heard a lot of criticism among public health officials that, that the Biden administration took too long, waited more than three weeks after the first fir- confirmed case in the U.S. to order bulk vaccines. How do you explain this delay from the administration in ordering vaccines? So, Jake, first of all, let me just say our goal here is to make sure that we end this outbreak. That is a number one goal of this president. The president back in May, remember the cases that the case that that came forward that we were aware of was in May. And back in May, when he was in Asia, he said this was we needed to act with urgency. And that's what we did. Uh, so the thing about infectious disease, which is inherently known, as you, I'm sure you know as well, Jake, is that they tend to evolve. And that's what we saw. We met the moment. Uh, when we heard about the first couple of cases, and then it evolved. It's dynamic. Uh, it changed. It's not what we're seeing right now with monkeypox. Monkeypox was here back in t- 2021. It was here in this country in 2003, and it has just yeah. evolved from that time. And so, if I if I may, just to give you a little bit on numbers of where we are today, we just announced 600,000 doses that have been shipped. Uh, that's going to go to jurisdiction. That's going to go uh, to states. We're working hand in hand with states. We understand the urgency of this. There's 1.1 million doses that are available, and also we. We have uh, we have about 5.5 million that are ordered and we up the capacity of testing. What's so important about that is people need to know if they have monkeypox or not and how to move forward with treatment and what they need to do to do. So there's this also that education uh, piece that matters. So when you look at the public health uh, uh, emergency that the, health, the HHS put forward, mm-hmm. what that's going to help us do is get that vaccine, uh, give them the tools and the understanding. How do you get that vaccine from one to five? That's really important. And also provide them uh, the data that is yeah. needed to really take this on because right. we are going to take this as urgent as, as we need to be. We only have about a minute left. I want to yep. ask you about inflation because you heard CNN's Gabe Cohen reporting on inflation making drug prices so high. The president has said on more than one occasion, He can't do much to bring down soaring prices. But one thing we know he could do is to lift the Trump era China tariffs, which definitely would help, according to economists. Uh, For almost a month, sources close to the White House have been telling CNN uh, that President Biden was nearing a decision on this, but he has not been able to make a decision. Why not? So let me just first say... uh Jake, that inflation is the president's number one economic priority. You've seen what he has done with gas prices, being able to bring that down uh, for almost seven weeks. And it is it is a, 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 a something that we haven't seen, I should say, in about a decade. Uh, and that's going to give relief because lowering costs wherever we can is going to give relief to middle class. When it comes to the China tariff, look, the president understand how important that decision is. Uh, he understands that we were the, the, the bad deal uh, that was made by the last administration. And he, as we know, this is a president that knows uh, what it's like for people to feel the pinch. And he wants to make sure that uh, we give everybody a little bit of relief that they need 
especially the middle class, and he's going to continue to do that work with gas prices, with this Inflation Reduction Act, which he is really grateful for, for Senator Manchin and Senator mm -hmm. uh, uh, Schumer to be working on that, and it's going to have effect. When, we, when I saw uh, the seniors in, in that package talking about the drug prices, that's what uh, one of the things that uh, this piece of legislation is going to do, that anti-inflation legislation is going to do, bring that down cost, health care costs uh, for, for uh, middle-class Americans, which is critically important. All right, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, thank you so much. We're going to take Jake. a quick, quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 